0: Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we have Dr. Timothy George. Dr. Timothy George is the founding dean of Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama, recently transitioned to research professor, which we talk about a little bit today. We also talk about his journey in becoming a scholar, and particularly his interest in being a Baptist who also cares about the great tradition. He talks about the good and bad of ecumenicalism. Uh, and what we can learn from each other while also being able to hold our convictions without giving up our convictions just for the sake of being nice or getting along, which I think is important. And he also talks about the reformers and their role in the church and how they relied on the early church and how they built on some of the things that had come before them. We also talk about the future of theological education, the ways that he at Beeson has tried to preempt and be proactive on some of the ways that culture is shifting on theological education. While also giving a vision for some things that we can do in the future to kind of help protect against some of the shift that's happening in the culture. So I hope you'll enjoy that conversation. This episode is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to check out their latest offerings, all their new Bibles, study Bibles, and reference products. You can also check out our other sponsor, B&H Academic, Dr. George's book, The Theology of the Reformers, one of the most popular books on the Reformation theology, is from BH Academic, so be sure to check that out and the other things that they are putting together at BHacademic.com. And now here's my conversation with Timothy George, but first, no big deal. I have Dr. Timothy George on the line. Dr. George, thank you so much for hopping on today.
1: I'm honored to be here, Brandon.
0: So we were just talking off air about the Center for Baptist Renewal, something that that I've been involved in, and and Matt Emerson and Luke Stamps and Winston Hopman have been involved in. And you were telling me how awesome you thought it was. So I thought we should probably get this on record, how awesome you think the uh, Center for Baptist Renewal is. So this is my shameless plug.
1: You know, it's just a great sign of encouragement. There's so much discouraging in the world and even in the church today that you kind of notice when things come that are just almost like a gift uh, of encouragement. That's the way I think about the Center for Baptist Renewal. I don't know a whole lot about how you guys came together and came up with this idea, but I think it's an inspired one because as I read what you're writing, uh, you're all faithful Baptists. You're not uh, anxious to become an Anglican or a Catholic or a Lutheran, That's right. and yet you see a wider kind of uh, appreciation of the Baptist heritage throughout the whole history of the church. And yeah. I think that's a wonderful thing. I've given a lot of my life and thought to do similar things. And so uh, I, I sometimes put it a little crudely when people say, why do you do this or that? I say, well, why should the Catholics have all the fun?
0: <laughs> that's right. You
1: know, there is a great uh, heritage of Christian faith that goes back to the very biblical roots and apostolic roots of the early church That we can lay claim to—not all of it, not 100 percent of uh, it—but where we can buy in without compromising our convictions, theologically, we ought to, and we're enriched by it. And I think that's what you guys are trying to do.
0: Well, I appreciate that, and and just to be clear, we did not pay Dr. George to do that, but I was thankful to have him say it on (laughs) record. So, (laughs) Uh, but Dr. George, yeah, you've been—I mean, you've been such an encouragement to us, and you've been. Uh, a champion for Baptist Catholicity and, and Baptist caring about the great tradition for so long. So if anything, where we came up with it was reading you and Dr. David Dockery and some others. So why don't you talk a little bit about how you got interested, you know, as you were coming through your PhD and um, coming into academia, how did you get interested in the Baptist tradition and how how you connect the Baptist tradition to the, to the greater uh, church tradition?
1: Well, let me go back a little earlier in my life. Uh, I was brought up in probably what uh, you might want to call old-fashioned, raw b- bone Southern Baptist fundamentalism. Uh, in fact, uh, I was baptized by an independent Baptist pastor, Dr. Lee Robertson, who was the pastor of a great church in my hometown of Chattanooga, Highland Park Baptist Church, 1956. I was only six years old. He baptized me. And that was kind of where I heard the gospel. Uh, People ask me sometimes why uh, I still have friendly feelings about those days. And it's because, you know, that's how I came to know Jesus Christ. They told me things I still believe today, that Jesus loved me and died for me, that the Bible is the word of God, that I can trust God in the difficult moments of life. They taught me all that. Mm -hmm. They loved me. They prayed for me. And so I've never felt the need to repudiate that past. Uh, we, we just thought we were biblical Christians. Now, we were Baptists, yes, and we knew that down the road there were the Methodists, and over the way there was the Church of God, and they did some things differently than we, we did. Uh, we were glad to be Baptists. We thought we were Baptists because we were the most biblical. And so that's kind of what I came from and still to some extent, to a great extent today, still affirm and believe in. Now, along the way, I began to read and study. I became a church historian, a theologian, and that led me into what you referred to already as the great tradition, that is the heritage of Christian thinking, believing, and confessing across time. And I discovered figures that I had not heard about in my Baptist Sunday school, like St. Augustine, like uh, Tertullian. I heard a little bit maybe about Luther and Calvin, but not much Uh, Wesley, uh, when we thought about the Methodists, that these people are not my enemies. Uh, They're places where we have disagreements, uh, but that we share a common core of Christian faith and belief, and that we can be together as a part of the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And I I came to see that uh, as an enrichment of my own faith. Now, when I got to Harvard, I worked with a great theologian, a great historian, George Hunston Williams. And he's really the one who opened my mind to the richness and the great uh, diversity of the Christian tradition across time. And I learned to read documents carefully from him. He was a great believer in primary source material. Uh, He was a great scholar of the Radical Reformation, the Anabaptists. But he knew so much more than just that one tradition. And I learned from him, I guess, to appreciate uh, what we call the Catholicity of the Church, we don't mean by that Roman Catholic. We mean by that the universality of God's people across time. Mm-hmm. Or as another great theologian, an Orthodox theologian named George Florovsky put it, the ecumenicity of the church in time as well as space. I like that phrase because it says that uh, the church is uh, uh, God's people across different different times, different eras, different moments. And that we're a part of all that. These are our speaking cousins.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We have a right to uh, converse with them about matters of faith.
0: Yeah, and there's, um, you know, a lot of people get turned off by the word ecumenical and, you know, um, in different ways. Catholicity, they think Catholic or something else. Ecumenical, they think, well, we're just surrendering our traditions or our beliefs or our core convictions just in the name of getting along. So how do you, how would you say, you know, as Baptist, Catholicity and ecumenism, how do you see that as, how do we keep our core beliefs as Baptists while also being able to appreciate the secondary and tertiary things that we might disagree on.
1: That that definition of ecumenicity you just gave uh, is what I have referred to as uh, an ecumenism of accommodation or an ecumenism of convenience, if you like. Let's just get down to the lowest possible common denominator and uh, forget about other truth claims that we make to one another. Uh, I think that's not the way forward. In fact, that is a a dead end. Hmm. What I want to support and have tried to talk about is an ecumenism of conviction that's deeply rooted in a certain understanding of Scripture, of the church, and that's not prepared to negotiate away those fundamental core values. Now, we have to acknowledge that we, we don't see eye to eye on everything. Let's take baptism, for example. I'm a Baptist. Uh, I have colleagues uh, who here at Beeson Divinity School and many other institutions who are Presbyterians or some other denomination that practices infant baptism. Uh, I don't accept that as a biblical pattern of baptism. I think they're wrong about that to be honest. Now, uh, I don't break fellowship with him over that issue, but we recognize that this is a matter on which we have conscientious disagreements. Mm-hmm. Now, when the Lord comes back, uh, the, the St. Paul says that he will present the church as without spot and without wrinkle. And I think that means that there will be a time when we won't have any more of these debates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we will know beyond any shadow of doubt about uh, congregationalism or Presbyterianism or Episcopalianism, these different views of church government. It'll be made clear. We're not there yet. What we see through a glass darkly, uh, Paul says, the Greek word there is enigma. We see in a blurred vision. Hmm. But then one day we'll see face to face. And we're on a journey together toward that beatific vision. We're not there yet. And so we learn to deal with one another truthfully, candidly, but also in charity. I like that verse in the Bible, 1 Peter 3.15. Be ready always to give an answer to everyone who asks for you of the hope you have within but do this with gentleness and respect. Mm-hmm. We sometimes quote the first part of that verse, be ready always to give an answer, and we kind of trail off when it gets to with <laughs> gentleness and respect. But if we want to follow the way of Jesus, I think that's what we're called to do.
0: Yeah, that that theological humility to admit that you might be wrong about a few things is really the first step, isn't it?
1: Mm. And humility is, you know, is a byproduct in a way. It's it's not I think a virtue to be cultivated. Uh, like uh, courage and some other things, it's it, uh, humility comes from walking with Christ mm-hmm. and for realizing that it's all by grace. It's not by works. It's not by achievements. It's by grace, and therefore that uh, has the uh, the result of making you uh, walk humbly with your God, as the prophet said.
0: Yeah. So you have done a lot of work too. I mean, you wrote the Theology of the Reformers with B and H, which has become one of the more popular. Uh, introductions to the Reformers' theology. You've written on, you know, Nicaea and evangelicals. So when you look at, you know, doing work on the Reformers, for example, you know there are a lot of people who will say the Reformers kind of, you know, broke away from tradition and started the, you know, some people think that the church started in 1555 or something, right? The true church did, and uh, of course mm-hmm. Luther did break away in some ways. But in what ways do you see Luther and Calvin and some of these Reformers holding tight to the great tradition before them, even while challenging the Catholic Church?
1: You know, this is one of the things I I came to see was an insight uh, I was not prepared for when I really uh, was delving into the writings of the Reformers in my doctoral work at at Harvard. Uh, I came to see that uh, the way we have understood and interpreted the Reformation to a great extent is wrongheaded. Uh, The Reformers did not set out to begin a new church Mm -hmm. or a new religious movement. Uh, to the day they died, the reformers saw themselves as faithful and obedient servants of the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. And you know, Calvin argues this against Cardinal Sadaletto, uh as to what, who are the true uh, descendants of the apostles. And he makes an argument that uh, it's really the Roman Catholic Church that has left uh, part of that great heritage that needs to be reclaimed. Mm-hmm. Uh, So I think the Reformers, in going back to the early creeds of the church, they, they didn't write their new creeds. There are no new creeds that came in the 16th or 17th century. They all affirmed the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, these classic documents of the faith. And one Baptist confession of the 17th century included the full text of all three creeds, the Apostles, the Nicene, and the Athanasian Creed and said these ought to be received and worthily believed by all all Christians, by Baptist Christians. But the Reformers did set forth not creeds, but confessions, because it was necessary to state the Christian faith for their own moment, for their own time, and in their own way. And so that's what the Protestant spirit gives us. Uh, It's under the authority of the Word of God, which is the on norman norms, the norm by which everything else is normed, we uh, are free to, to restate the classic Christian conviction expressed in the creeds of the early church in a new situation. And so we have in the Reformation for the Lutherans, the Augsburg Confession, For the Calvinists, the Genevan Confession and the Westminster Confession and so forth and so on. And then when Baptists come on the scene in a visible way in the 17th century, they begin to do the same thing. So you have that wonderful 1644 particular Baptist Confession of London. Mm -hmm. And then the more famous 1677, 1689 Second London Confession. These are just a few of the many, many Baptist confessions of faith not trying to start something new, but trying to renew the faith that had to some extent become obscure uh, through, through time. So I think that's our challenge today. Uh, it's, it's to go back to the Bible, first of all, as it's been refracted through the ministry and history of the church, expressed in the early classical creeds, and resurfaced in a new and fresh way in the confessions of the Reformation and the early Baptist movement.
0: Yeah, and so how did you, being the founding dean at Beeson, and you know, you Stanford University where Beeson is at, is a Baptist school, and yet they hire you, and you come in with this, you know, vision for catholicity and this vision for having a diverse faculty. When you got there in the late '80s, and as you went through the '90s, how did you uh, pitch this vision, or how did you cast this vision to your faculty when you have Anglicans and different people? Now there's a, there's a, a Lutheran, Doug Sweeney, who's now the dean there. How are you casting that sort of vision? even within a Baptist context, to be able to say, hey, this is a good thing. This is something that we should be pursuing.
1: I use the expression evangelical essentials, by which I mean the core fundamental truths of the gospel. Um, and, and they are also the, the true fundamental core beliefs of the Protestant Reformation. That, uh, and so we focus on those. That's, 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 you might say, the sweet spot of our, our, our unanimity. Uh, We don't allow a lot of diversity. If if you think uh, uh, God is two and not three, you don't belong (laughs) at Beeson Divinity School. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you believe Jesus is just one other way, like Buddha and like uh, different religions, uh, that's not a part of our core conviction. You'd be outside our frame of reference. But within the common core of Christian conviction, the evangelical essentials, we agree on that. We have a confession of faith at Beeson Divinity School, all our faculty subscribe it on those essentials. And then around the edges, we agree to differ on what we might call secondary or tertiary matters of faith. Some say, what's the biblical justification for that construal? Well, there are many, but I would, I would go to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I delivered unto you that which was of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again. That's of first importance. And so Jude does the same thing and talking about the, the to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There is a core orthodox center of the Christian faith, and we want to be right in the heart of that. And around the edges on a lot of hot-button issues that people divide on, uh, we are charitable with one another. Mm-hmm. It's not to say— all degrees are, all beliefs are equal. It's not to say we're never going to disagree with one another. At Beeson, we sometimes have uh, open discussion—I wouldn't call them arguments or debates—but free-flowing discussion about matters in which we are not agreed. But we try to do it in charity and love, and seeking better understanding. It's worked great at Beeson for 31 years, and I think it will continue to do so under our new dean, Dr. Doug Sweeney. And so that's the way we've operated uh, with the rule of charity and love and respect uh, being uh, just the the common air we breathe together. Has it pleased everybody in the world who look at us from the outside? Well, no, uh, but probably neither does any other model of being a theological (laughs) school. You're going to get some brick throwers and you got to kind of develop a little bit of a tough skin. But, you know, we were convinced that we were led by God to construct this model. And uh, it's worked uh, just wonderfully. And I think if you ask people who've gone to Beeson, they think it's a good way to learn to be a minister of the gospel in a world like ours.
0: And when you started Beeson and maybe in the early years or going through, was there ever a moment where things got a little too testy or things, things among the faculty where you were like, ah, I don't know if, we, if we're doing the right thing here, if, if we need to, to recast a vision, or has it always been pretty smooth for the most part?
1: Well, the vision hasn't changed. The vision has been constant, but uh, I would say we've grown. We've learned uh, things to say things in a better way Mm -hmm. and to do things in a better way. Uh, And we've, as I say, uh, we've been criticized by this one and that one and the other one on various matters. Overall, I think uh, we've had a wonderful beginning as a school with a sense of real collegiality and fellowship together in the gospel. That's what's held us together. So I think we've had far more um, not placid, uh, serene times, but a far more consistent sailing through these waters than we might have hoped for.
0: Yeah, I'm sure part of that too is hiring the right faculty up front that aren't the uh, aren't the brawler type, right?
1: <laughs> That's about ninety two percent of it, Brandon. Yeah. Uh, and when we look at new faculty, of course you look at academic credentials, you look at you know how how can they teach and communicate. But the thing you're talking about is the factor that's hard to determine sometimes up front, but it's very important, collegiality. And that's the sense that, that you want to be a part of a community and that you want to share your life with others who have some common convictions together and who are going to work uh, charitably with and gently with one another. I think that's that's been our rule of thumb from the beginning. And with a few exceptions, okay, in 31 years, uh, it's worked uh, flawlessly.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, so as you're transitioning out of being the full-time dean there, um I think at the time we're recording this, this will be posted later, but at the time we're recording this, I think doug Sweeney was was appointed or his first day was official yesterday or the day before. So you are you're fresh, fresh, fresh in a new office and not the found, not the uh, full-time dean anymore. Um, what are some things that you see in the future, not just at Beeson, but in theological education? that you're encouraged by, and what are some things that you're concerned by moving forward as you as you see your school that you founded going into the future in this kind of broader climate of theological education?
1: Well, uh, theological education in especially North America today uh, is in difficult uh, times. Uh, questions of how, how to have a financial financially viable model going forward for any denomination, for any school, uh, training ministers of the gospel. Uh, Can you afford it? Uh, That's a very important question. And then the delivery system is a very important question. Uh, Technology is changing the way we think, the way we we do things, Uh, how we develop library collections. All of these are different now than they were 31 years ago when we started Beeson Divinity School. And I think to be wise, we have to be alert to that and respond to it in, in a good way. Uh, The one thing Beeson has emphasized that I hope we don't lose, and I would commend it to other schools, is the fact that uh, what we're after at Beeson Divinity School is personal theological transformation. Uh, We teach for transformation. We study for transformation. And uh, that means uh, we take persons seriously. Uh, We believe in face-to-face, heart-to-heart, mind-to-mind, soul-to-soul, theological education. And that requires time. That requires rubbing souls together, as one of our former colleagues, Wallace Williams, used to put it. Uh, At Beeson, spiritual formation is a big component of how we go about this. Corporate worship together is a very important thing. And so that's been a priority here. We've emphasized that, and I think it's had an impact over several generations of students. And that's the challenge going forward, to keep this model intact while responding to the other pressures and issues that are all around us in the world and even in the church.
0: Now, do you think that as as the culture kind of continues to shift as it does, and obviously there's a lot of concerns about legal things and Title IX and, and federal aid yep. and all these different things, are you seeing, do you think that there's a future in which we probably need to be tightening in on the community aspect and less on the sort of online, distance, broad type things because of the culture not even just like a pedagogical reason.
1: Yeah, that's uh, been our model, and it's not been a reactionary model. I think it's proactive because this is the better way to train ministers of the gospel for the service of the church. But it does have these dimensions you're talking about, and they're increasingly um, uh Uh, We're increasingly under pressure to respond to them in different ways, and and we have to be wise in how we do that. You know, the figure who's probably been more of a mentor to us than anyone else in recent church history is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When we began Beeson uh, back in 1988, uh, Life Together by Bonhoeffer was kind of our manual. Every student read it. We still read it today Hmm. in our spiritual Hmm. formation classes, The Cost of Discipleship. And what that was, obviously in a very different setting than we are today, in Nazi Germany, an underground seminary, where people were committed to one another, committed to following Jesus Christ together, to having a life together. And I think that's uh, a good model we don't need to easily let go of. We have to respond in a different way as the pressures are there. Uh, You know, we we're not able to do everything we would like to do in an ideal world. But Bonhoeffer reminds us that we are called to real, not ideal communities of faith. Hmm. That's true in a marriage. That's true in a church. It's true in a seminary.
0: So as you're as you're looking forward now, what other projects do you have down the pike? What are you looking forward to as as kind of stepping away from being full time dean? I'm sure maybe you'll have a little bit more time on your hands.
1: Well, I have not been a good steward, uh, Brandon, of uh, of finding a way to manage all the different things I've committed to do. (laughs) I say this as a confession of sin and not as a a boast, but I actually have uh, more than uh, eight book projects I've committed to do, and I've got to prioritize those and get to work on them and make some real progress. I'll be able to do that now. Uh, in my new role here as research professor. I still want to stay active in the proclamation of the gospel. You know, God never called me to be a professor or a dean or administrator. Uh, Those are jobs I've had in the fulfillment of my calling, which was to be a preacher of the gospel. Hmm. So I wouldn't want to have any one of these jobs if I couldn't also at the same time uh, proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, risen, ascended, and coming again. And I hope I'll continue to have opportunities to do that in this new role while also fulfilling some of these commitments I've made.
0: And what do you have in that? What of projects in the future that you're allowed to talk about? Are you excited about that are, that you're working on that are coming?
1: Yeah, I'll mention a few, a few of them. Um, one of them is a commentary on the book of James. You know, a few years ago I wrote a commentary for the new American commentary series from Robin and Holman, uh, and it's going to be brought out again in a, in a somewhat revised form. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought I wrote on Galatians, but James is in the New Testament too. Luther didn't think as highly of it, maybe as he should have, although he did not excise it from the canon, right. as some people say. Exaggerated it both demoted. ways. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to try to write a commentary on James, uh, and then I've uh, that's for the Brazos Theological Commentary Series. Mm-hmm. I have another book I'm, I'm very excited about, and that is a book—I'm uh, going to call it From from the Fundamentals to ECT. ECT stands for Evangelicals and Catholics Together, and it's a theological discussion group, 25 years old, that I've been a part of almost from the beginning, uh, how this grew out of a certain kind of movement within evangelicalism itself. Uh, we talk about our divisions. We are a fissiparous people. We— off in all kinds of different directions and split right and left and in the middle, but there is also, bubbling just beneath the stream, an underground river of, uh, you might say, an impulse or an intuition toward Christian unity. And I want to tease that out. I want to explore that through kind of biographical theological studies of some of the great figures over the last hundred years in evangelical life. Uh, that's a that's a big idea, and so that, that's going to take some time. Uh, and uh, then I'm writing a book with a colleague here at Beeson, uh, Kristen Padilla, called Mothers of the Reformation. Hmm. Uh, women, women who were very important and largely uh, neglected or unknown even. Uh, been a little bit written about some of these figures in recent years. They deserve a better hearing. Uh, figures like, for example, Argula von Grumbach, who was a correspondent with Luther and Melanchthon and a uh, remarkable woman of faith. And, uh, then there's a, a woman named Katharina Schutz-Zell in uh, Strasbourg, a mother of the Reformation uh, in the work she did there with uh, her husband, and Matthew Zell. So there are other figures that we're going to explore in this book. That, that's one of the things that's on the front burner.
0: Yeah, that's really exciting. That's uh, I know um, Kristen has done a lot of uh, good work there at Beeson, and I'm glad that you guys are working on that um, that volume. I know there's some things recently coming out about women in the early church and the importance of women uh, you know, in the first couple centuries yeah. as well. So I'm glad that work's being done. Uh, speaking of that, too, you didn't ask me to plug this, but I think it, it's worth plugging. Um, if the listeners want to go over to Beesondivinity.com or read uh, Beeson Magazine, there's a great... A uh, little two-part um, thing that Kristen put together on your kind of your journey through uh, your faith and through Beeson Divinity School, which I think is really encouraging and really well done. So, I encourage people to go read that. I'm sure I'm sure she could have done an eight-parter, and you only got two parts in there. Many blessings on your future as you become a research professor and get all of these books put out. We'll be excited to read them.
1: Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. God bless you.